Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we gather and thank you for sending your son to destroy the works of the devil. We never can have, could have broken the tie to Satan. On our own, we wouldn't even have wanted such release. Our deliverer came to a hostile world, a stubborn people. You died for a sinful, alienated people, and we are thankful today for life through our Lord. We rejoice in the truth, and we expose error. Oh, how small an error can become such a great agent of change. We are commanded to watch out for the enemies of the cross of Christ. We are to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Help us by identifying error in our own thinking, in our own hearts. Help us love you more and love truth above all. Help us see the lesson in this text today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're glad to see you back. And some of you have been ill. Uh, Weather has made it hard for some of you to come. Maybe there's other things in your life. Hey, I have problems too. Last week, just before I got up, just as I was getting up to preach, I got a notification that uh, credit card hack and somebody had charged something. I had to cut up a credit card. Didn't think it would get any worse. Today, just before I got up, I broke a, a shoelace. And it just continues. It, I don't know how I can preach this way. I'm glad we're gathered together. And some of you we've missed for a while. Aren't you glad that we have the, uh, the, the power of God through his word and we're not left to our own devices? We come to the halfway point in Mark's gospel. And this is a very pivotal point in the record. And from this point on, our Lord Jesus Christ deals with religious leaders and he deals with unbelievers uh, quite differently. He's now ministering in the shadow of the cross. The cross is looming large. He's got less time to work. And at the same time, it's as if the false teachers and the religious leaders are turning up the heat of opposition against him. Following the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 plus, uh, he's down somewhere in the, when he feeds the 4,000 plus in that region of Decapolis on the, uh, on the southeastern corner of the lake. He crosses over to the northwestern side. There is Tiberias and Magdala and uh, other cities, and he reaches an area known as Magadan or Magadan. Uh, in our record, in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, he, he calls it Balmanutha. Uh, there's an area that uh, we don't hear a whole lot of between Tiberias and Gennesaret. By the way, years ago, when I had the privilege of going to Israel, we stayed at a hotel right down by the lake, and uh, we drove by some of these cities, but we were told, yeah, on our tour, we're not going to take any, any of that. And I was younger then and in better shape, so I decided to jog that region. Well, one point I sprinted, 
because some Jewish dogs got loose and chased me on a road, and I, I went a little faster than I meant to. But to, to, you're walking the very territory, you think, this is where Mary was from. This is where such and such miracle took place. This is where the Lord taught the following lesson. And here, in our text, in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, or 8, uh, verse 11, we've got this delegation, a, a hostile delegation. It says in Mark, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign to test him. I wonder if some of these that Matthew said they were Pharisees and Sadducees, we'll come to that in just a second, but I wonder if some of these were the same group that it says in chapter 7, verse 1, who gathered to him. Might have been a different Delegation might have been some of the same ones. They just don't give up easily here. So uh, they come to discredit point A. It, it was set, this challenge of dead religion. We talk about these men. They were, you know, anybody who belongs to a religious group or a political organization for that matter, you believe that your church, your religion, your cause has the truth and has vision. Nobody joins something. Nobody connects themselves to something that they say, I know it's in the wrong. I know it didn't really happen. I know that they don't have the truth, but I'm going to, I'm going to champion this cause. No, we don't, we don't do that. And so Eastern mysticism and cults, modern cults, and theological liberalism, they wouldn't think they have anything in common, but they do. They all present themselves as the door to truth, as the medium to enlightenment, and the Lord would call them all children of darkness. Our text in Mark 8 and following is a very ancient example of what I would call a present dilemma. Something's going on around us that I'm telling you is nothing new. Write it down that man-centered philosophy never produces God-centered worship. Amen? You know, the problem that's going on around in a lot of churches is that it is, a man's, it is about us. How, how do I feel in this worship service? What does it do for me? What does it do for mankind? Instead of really being God-centered, it's man-centered. Well, they were set, verse 11, on discrediting Jesus. It says they came and began to argue with Arguing with Jesus. They came to discredit the Messiah. This is, um, uh, sometimes the Pharisees took a shot at Jesus. Sometimes the Sadducees lined up. They gathered their forces together. They didn't have a whole lot in common, but they gathered together to take a shot, a swing at the Lord on this day. They had their, their differences, but you know what? They were in full agreement. This guy's got to go. He's enemy number one. Instead of looking at him, what you and I would say the obvious is right in front of him. No one teaches like him. No one has authority like him. No one can make disease go away like him. This is the one we've waited for. And they said, this is the one we need to get rid of. A Pharisee, the 
conservatives of the day, a Pharisee would have told you that they believed in Ra. That's how I remember what they believed, not the Egyptian God. That's a different Ra. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels, and they believed in hell. Now, there were other things they believed, but that distinguished them from the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in a whole lot that was supernatural. They believed in different parts of the scripture, but the Pharisees were the conservatives. They considered themselves the fundamentalist of their day. They held to the scriptures, but really what they were holding to were their traditions, their Rules that they had interpreted, well, that obviously that's God's word. Jesus comes along and says, obviously it's not. Because it's what comes from the heart of man, and their rules had blinded them. John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Jesus came to his own, and his own, what? Received him not, including these very religious individuals. He came to them. He spent a whole lot. Would you have been as patient with the Pharisees as Jesus was? I don't know. Jesus was the light of God. But these religious leaders who were in darkness, they wouldn't accept his claim that he was God. Nothing he said or did would move them from their pedestal of unbelief. Jesus, in their eyes, got in the way. He got in the way of their traditions, of their agenda. He exposed them for what they really were. And that got under their skin. So they come with a, they desired, they demanded a sign. They tested him. Not in the sense of a scientist who may test something neutrally. Well, let's find out what this is made of. They came, it's the same word that's used to speak about the temptation that Satan applies to Jesus in, uh, in Matthew chapter 3. What would you and I think of a scientist who spent a good bit of his life, year after year, testing, trying to prove, what is he trying to prove? That the earth is flat. And all the data that he gets, the curvature of the earth, uh, whatever else goes into that proof. I just walked out of my zone <laughs> real quick. But whatever he would use to prove, all the data came back showing him the opposite. And instead of believing what he had in front of him, he just kept, no, no, I know it's flat. I'm going to prove it. Now, if you're a flat earther, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry I said that. I'm sorry you're a flat earther. But, but it was a sign from heaven. What, they wanted a sign from heaven. What was a sign from heaven? Elijah called down fire from heaven. Joshua prayed and the moon stood still. If you do something like that, because anybody, any charlatan can do something that we can't explain and sometimes a Moses can throw down his rod and our practitioners can, can duplicate that. But you do something that comes from heaven and we'll know you're from God. Now we got him. Because there's no way he can do that. We'll prove him to be the deceiver. 
How many miracles, I haven't added it up, but how many miracles had they witnessed? Some that were in this delegation that came, they had heard of miracles. Some, I'm guessing, had seen him do some miracles. And yet they're demanding a semion, a sign, something that comes from God. A sign from heaven. You know what sign from heaven he had given? John chapter 11. I am the bread that comes down from God. I am the bread of heaven. Huh. They were blinded. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 talks about Satan has blinded their my, minds. Satan has blinded their minds. That means that without a, an act of God, the gift of mercy and grace from God, nothing that Jesus could do would convince them, turn them. The Pharisees... They wanted to be right. You know anybody like that? <laughs> We're all that way. They wanted to be right. They wanted to be respected. And they wanted Jesus to be discredited and dead. They sent groups, oftentimes it says, thinking how they might capture him, how they might destroy him, kill him. It was set on discrediting Jesus. Something else about this delegation, this these members of this dead religion and the challenge that they, they posed is that it was set on notice, verse 12. Let's read verse 12. It was set on notice. And he sighed deeply. I think of that. There's other times where Jesus, we just said recently, just last Sunday, he groaned within his own spirit. But here he sighs. I think it's an audible expression of exasperation. He knows that of their stubborn unbelief. They are entrenched in this error. They are set against him. This test was a, a, a pit in which they thought he would fall and couldn't get himself out of. He sighed in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? In their stubborn unbelief, seek a sign. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He set them on notice. They had been trained from their living around a lake, a lot of them, to learn the signs, the epochs of, uh, of a coming storm, when it's okay to go out in the water, when, it would, when it's not. But he says, how can you not interpret, how can you be so blind to the signs, the spiritual signs of God? The things that the prophets of old had said would be true of the Messiah that are coming to reality in me, you are seeing in me. How can that not be so obvious? And Jesus sighs and, and shows that they are blind to, he says, you, you, you can see temporal, obvious, physical signs, but what you don't see is spiritual truth. And the problem is that these were not necessarily sailors who had come to him, but they were religious leaders, the blind Leading the blind, yes? 
they were dull to the signs given by John the Baptist and Jesus himself. They were blind to the fact that this Messiah was present. They were blind to what was right in front of them. We all feel a little awkward or a little silly when you say, you see my keys? Or have you seen my glasses? Yeah, they're right on your head. Oh, thank you. It's right in front of you. But here you got something spiritual and they say, I, I don't see it. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. A sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. So Jesus arrives back in Galilee. Notice verse 10. It says, and immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanuthah. And then later we read, immediately he left them. Verse 13, he left them and got in the boat and went to the other side. Immediately. Mark uses that expression 40, 42 times in his gospel. It keeps the action moving along. His account is shorter than the other gospel records, but it's an action gospel. He's, he's showing the, the progress, the interest of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and when Jesus moves from point to point and does so immediately, you know what? One of the things that Jesus is showing is that he is setting the pace. He is determining. It is He is following the will of his fathers. He's not following the signal of the Pharisees. They are not setting the agenda. His earthly ministry was on the move. And Mark shows us just how intentional and how purposeful Jesus was. And you and I should rejoice in that. He was in control of what was going on. And he still is. Jesus never paused he never stayed somewhere an hour longer than the Father wanted. He never paused in obeying the Heavenly Father perfectly. And nor should we. As his disciples, when the Lord gives us something to obey, and we say, I, I just don't know that I'm comfortable with that. Jesus immediately moved on. There's a simple prayer for us today. Lord, fix thee immediately in me that I move on, that what I read in the word of God, I say, may this be come a reality in me today. Lord, help me to obey you in this today instead of pausing. So in Matthew's account when he says, no sign will be given but the sign of Judah, J Jonah, to my understanding, this is the first reference that Jesus makes of his coming death and of the resurrection. And and they refused to see. No sign would be given to them because they refused to see. Jesus is not going to stay there a minute longer because they refused to see. And you have to admit there's a judicial blinding that's going on. No sign would convince them from that, that he had the truth. Nothing he could do. Luke 16 says, not even if he raised one from the dead. So there was this challenge that came in just these couple verses from, from men that were opponents who were hostile to the message. Oh, I hope that that is not the case with you today. But I'll tell you, 
You say, well, I'm not hostile to, I'm just, I'm not a believer yet. I haven't put my faith, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're hostile. No, 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 I, I, I consider myself neutral. I'm just, I'm looking, I'm trying to work out the fine details and work out a contract with God that we can both agree to. You're alienated from God. Until you're right with God, you're wrong with God. Let's look secondly at verses 14 and following, the challenge to the true disciples. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and Pastor Smith's right. There's something comical here, something very visual, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. They had just, boy, there had been all kinds of bread just recently when they were breaking bread, and Jesus was breaking bread, and they were passing it out. And, uh, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the leaven of Herod, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. It's kind of like when pastor preaches and you think, oh, oh, I, he must know. My, my father got, my mother and father should not have gotten married when they did. My dad was an unbeliever. It was an unequal yoke. My mother would t- have told you that right up to her dying day. And it was a point just before my dad left to uh, go to be with the Marines and serve in Korea that my mother said, would you come? Our church is having special meetings. Would you come? My dad had actually taught Sunday school at one point as an unbeliever. So just the fact that you teach somewhere or you have some position doesn't mean you're a Christian. He came and heard that evangelist give the gospel and he said afterwards, I was convinced that she must have had a meeting with him and told him everything about me. It was the most uncomfortable place, but he gave his heart to the Lord and was saved. The challenge to the, the disciples, when the, the disciples hear Jesus say, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Oh, I told you, he'd know. We didn't bring bread. He's on to us. What a teaching moment that ha- happens here. So there's a problem that is exposed, point A. We have the challenge of dead religion and the challenge to true disciples, and it starts off with this problem that is exposed, something that is, is made obvious. Little things can expose big problems sometimes, can't they? You take your car and you say, it's making this little noise, and the mechanic says, I'm glad you brought that in because your transmission was ready to fall out. Okay. Or you go to a doctor and you say, I have this little cough. And he says, boy, I'm glad that you came in because uh, we caught in time this problem or we need to make you aware of this bigger problem than your cough. The disciples had, seems like a simple mistake, and the Lord says, he kind of jumps on that as a teaching moment. There failure to bring enough bread for 13 men led to an obvious problem that they they had little faith they had deficient understanding and the lord says let's let's address this and he gives them what i would call a a six part loving rebuke aren't you this aren't you that why aren't you more like this they became fixated on their failure and they began verse 14 discussing with one another 
the fact that they had no bread. They're hearing Jesus teaching, oh, it's he's talking about us. He's talking about we didn't bring bread. Jesus gives a very timely warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And they, they look back at their failure to bring a, lo- a few more loaves. They, they heard a rebuke for not bringing lunch. They became fixated on their failure, as it were. And when Jesus is giving a, a metaphor, and he's teaching, they, they totally missed it. Don't be too hard on them, by the way. They totally missed it because they were discussing the problem with each other. And the Lord seizes on it. So then we have, in verses 15 and 20, the principle explained. Starts off by saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Isn't it uncomfortable and the Lord knows what you're thinking or saying? But he does. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Let that rebuke set in for just a second. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not yet see? And having ears, do you not yet hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves and for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. They said it like that, by the way, 12. And, and the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus uses this, this problem, to this warning, to teach them another important lesson. Remember we said that going up into that region, Tyre, Sidon, then down through... Through, on the south end of Mount Hermon down to Decapolis the Lord is teaching his disciples intense graduate level courses that were going on and he's, he's pouring himself into them and actually you say explaining the principle pastor he doesn't explain the principle in Mark's gospel he doesn't he leaves off the lesson, but in Matthew, is, Mark says, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's the principle? It doesn't seem like he gives it. By the way, Luke 12, 1 and 2, he says, what is the leaven there? According to Luke, Jesus says, which is hypocrisy. And as we read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12, he, he says the, the, the error of the disciples is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That was the leaven. Now we, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the, the principle of what leaven is and how it affects bread. We know it's, it's used in Scripture as an agent of change, as something that is pervasive, usually a negative example, something that is corruptive. Yeast has an impact. It has an influence. And here Jesus says, beware of the impact of the influence of the Pharisees and Herod. There's another interesting coupling. Not just the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now it's beware of the the eleven of the Pharisees and Herod. Their 
toxic teaching had spread through the nation. There wasn't a corner of Israel that wasn't affected. In fact, if people had just been given the scriptures and been able to read that, they would have come to a better understanding than when Pharisees said, well, and what this actually means, and what the prophets were actually saying, and the way you actually obey this is to obey our laws and jump through our hoops. Most of the time, Levin speaks of a very invasive, corruptive power of sin. And here we've got disciples that we saw in Matthew chapter 7 that were focused on the external strictness, not the internal righteousness. They didn't have the second. They had a double portion of the first. And the the error and the leaven of Herod, that's a little bit more puzzling. What is Jesus referring to? The self-righteous Pharisees would have thought they had nothing in common with Herod. They wouldn't want their name in the same sentence with Herod. And yet Jesus does. He says, your unbelief is just the same. Part of the, what, one of the common denominators between them is Herod was a very proud man. Very territorial about his influence, his power. He wanted no rivals. What about the Pharisees in the spiritual realm? They were very territorial about their power. They had had this good thing going on with their little phylacteries and the respect of the people and the discount that they got at uh, at the camel shop and things like that. Sin is the great common denominator. Sin equalizes the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Herod, and me. Jesus had taught them to pray in Matthew 6, 11, talking back now about the disciples. He said, pray, give us this day our, what? Daily bread. And they were to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Folks, there are a thousand different things you can be thinking about. You've already hit 75 of them during this message. But there are a thousand things you can be applying yourself to or thinking about or pursuing rather than the righteous, the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. It is an, a deliberateness, an, an act that we say, you know, I'm not going to read that. I'm not going to watch this. I'm not going to turn this on. I'm going to read God's word right now. I'm not going to think on that. I have no control over that. That's the future. I'm, I need not worry about that. But I am going to apply myself what I, the truth that I learned this morning in God's word. What delights you? What occupies you? Look at that list and you might find some leaven in your life. There may be some things that we say... You know, I delight in the wrong things. I go to church, but then I turn on football, if that's it. I I do this, but then I do this. Now I have time, I can do what really delights me. Got a problem there. We've got a problem there. Ask yourself today, as we start to wrap this up, ask yourself, 
Am I loving God and truth or just settling for religion and morality? Again, the Pharisees, Pharisees are absolutely convinced that God saw their religious, strict, righteous acts, and God was impressed, and as we know, God was not. And Jesus could say the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. That must have rubbed them wrong. External obedience. You know, it's, it's awful easy for you and me to look at, at other people and say, well, I don't see any Pharisee in me, but I, th- I don't think that they should be doing that because I wouldn't do it. I don't know if they're really a Christian because they're doing something and I wouldn't do it. Is it sin? Is it in God's word? Well, no. How specific can I get here? You didn't bring anything to throw at me, right? You know. We can say, well, I don't think they're a Christian. How do you, what makes you think? Well, they have a tattoo or they have an ear piercing. Or they, do, they, they have some color in their hair and I wouldn't do that. Me either. But is that sin? But you know what? Even as conservative Christians, you and I can get to the point where we make a, an eye judgment of something And you and I should step back and say, hmm, and there's no Pharisee alive today? I see one every time I look in the mirror. Ask yourself another question. Am I the host of any leaven of Phariseeism? Am I just, first question, am I just content with morality instead of true righteousness? Second question, is there any of the seed or leaven or yeast of Phariseeism in me, in my values, in my judgments, in my actions? You say, well, yeah, but it's, I got it under control. I had something under control for a little while. It was just a little spot until I asked the doctor to cut it out and I, I got a nice long scar from it. There are times where we say, I, it's okay, it's under control. We need the Lord to take the cutting edge of God's word word, and excise it from our life. You say, but I'm watching it. Sin can spread rapidly to every area of your heart and really can affect the body of Christ. And throughout church history, there's been this battle for truth. We are to be identifying false doctrine out there and in here. We are to be on guard against misled and what I would say are misleading false teachers. And there have been a few times in the years that I've been here at this church where we've had to actually tell somebody, nice to meet you, please leave and don't come back again because your false teaching doesn't line up with the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and, and the Adamic nature of man and you don't believe what we believe and you're here to influence, we're putting the leaven out. Sorry, thank you for coming. Don't come back. Pastor, it didn't sound loving. You know what? I, I love truth and I love the unity of the body of Christ. I don't love false teachers coming in and dividing the body of Christ. You know, you and I should be on fire. We don't want a 
stagnant Christianity. We don't want a lukewarm belief. We should be on fire. When is the last time that anybody would have accused you of being on fire? I remember hearing years ago about a, a pastor who was got in the middle of the night a warning that their church was on fire. He got down there. It was burning to the ground. And as he's standing there watching the firefighters fight it, and he looks over, and there's a neighbor right across the street who had never been to the church. He said, how come you never came before? He said, because it's never been on fire before. (laughs) Now listen, in a spiritual sense, there are people that they respect you because you're moral. As far as they know, you could be a Mormon. You're clean cut, and you let them borrow your ladder as needed. But there's been no witness. There's been no fire. Jesus is coming back to judge the world. Jesus is going to judge all unbelief. And you know what else he's going to judge? 21st century Phariseeism. It doesn't bug me. It grieves God. This third question as we wrap things up, am I missing the big picture of what Christ is trying to teach me? How often do we read a passage or hear a sermon and we miss the central point? We, We miss the point that Christ is trying to make. Let the arrow find its mark today. Don't be a disciple that... When Jesus gives a warning, you say, oh, I think he's talking about we didn't bring enough lunch today. No, say, Lord, a passage like this, things that I read, expose what you're really saying and what the real need is in me. Let the arrow find its mark today. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Lord, it's easy for us to fall into the pit that the apostles did. And while we would avoid major false teaching, we do still permit persistent sin, sin that hardens our heart. Give us discernment this morning to identify leaven and give us grace to deal with it as you commanded the church. We cannot afford to give place to the devil or to the doctrine of demons, or to the smallest sin in us. Give us eyes to see, and ears to hear, and strength to obey. Hardness of heart is is more serious than any physical heart abnormality. Turn our anxiety about politics and the economy and moral issues to rather to be a deep concern about our own sin we're we're not here to let the world and the flesh or the devil determine what should really be consuming for us what should be the passion of the the church may the joy of the Lord be our strength today make our light bright at Westerville Bible Church arresting and beneficial light. Save us from dull, lifeless religion and morality, we pray in your name.
Amen.